Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, happy uh, middle March madness. I hope I, I hope your bracket's doing better than um, uh, one former president, <laughs> uh, Barack Obama, who decided to release his, who is just toast. Well, he, he does the same thing. He's done the same thing a lot of years where he picks all the number one seeds to go to the final four. Which, all chalk. Yeah. All chalk. I mean, which sometimes, you know, ends up being the smart play, but not this year. No, this year was crazy. And look, my I think everyone's bracket is a disaster because the college basketball season didn't really happen. And so knew, nobody yeah. knew how to predict already yeah. difficult games to predict. But, you know, Illinois in the final, that's tough. That's hard to recover from. Anyway, no one listening to the show is here for this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Check so, out Jason Concepcion, uh, Take yes. uh, Yeah, the best new podcast uh, on the internet. That's exactly right. So here's what we're <laughs> going to cover today. So uh, Israeli voters are are going to the polls again today. We'll talk about that. Uh, the stakes of the Biden administration's personnel fight that's happening right now in the Senate. Vaccine inequality uh, may be happening. Debates with Russia and the U.S. More protests in the U.K. Hope for a ceasefire in Yemen. Joe Biden and the war on drugs. And then some updates out of Myanmar. A tense meeting between the U.S. Uh, and Chinese officials. And then we'll check in on... Prince Harry, because you're, you know, we have our royal correspondent here, and I figured I have to ask you. Um, yeah. And then uh, World Does will hear my interview with Jugmeet Singh. He's a member of the Canadian Parliament, uh, and he's a leader of Canada's new Democratic Party. Ben, I know you're like actual real life friends with Justin Trudeau, and that he and and Jugmeet are, are political rivals. But I have to admit, this was like the most fun interview I've done in a while. We talked last Friday. I felt like we could have seamlessly transitioned from a conversation about like Canadian politics to sitting on my couch watching the basketball and like sipping on some Molson. So I think what anybody would say, right, is he's just like a, an incredibly likable guy who's done yeah. an incredible job of making that party relevant. Right. And it's good. It's healthy. Right. I mean, I, like, yeah, I, I'm close, particularly to some people around Trudeau. And but the it, it's a good thing that there's a progressive party there that's you know, holding their feet to the fire. Uh, but I'm, yeah. I'm psyched to hear the interview. Pressure from the left is good. Look at uh, Chuck Schumer. Um, speaking of the NCAA tournament, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this earlier. Do not miss this week's episode of Take Line. So Jason and Renee Montgomery, who's a WNBA champion, they break down March Madness. They talk about the NBA. And then the incredible life and career of uh, NBA legend Elgin Baylor, who just passed away at 86. He, like the guy, Ben, apparently he was active duty army. And when he could get a pass, he would catch a commercial flight to go meet up with the Lakers and then play and then would drop like 30, 10 and 10. It's just an unbelievable episode. So check out uh, the Take Line YouTube. Uh, check out Take Line wherever you get your podcast. There's also All Caps NBA, uh, Jason Conception's other show. And then this week's episode of Pod Save the People is fantastic. DeRay and the crew are joined by author Cleo Wade. They talk about her new book uh, and explore the question of whether it's okay to sometimes wander down the wrong path in life, something we have all done, something we have all thought about. So do not miss that. Um, so Ben, 
Speaking of March Madness, uh, Israelis went to the polls today for the fourth time, fourth time uh, in two years, the fourth parliamentary election. Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is the longest serving leader in Israel's history. He's facing multiple corruption charges and staying in office. So what a surprise helps him avoid prosecution. Sounds familiar. Early polling suggests that Netanyahu's party, the Likud party, is the most popular political party in Israel and will get the most seats of any party. But it's not yet clear whether Netanyahu will be able to stitch together a coalition of, you know, probably right wing and then ultra right wing or ultra orthodox parties to control a majority of seats in the Knesset, Israel's parliament, and that would allow him to remain prime minister. Uh, Ben, I can't imagine going through four elections in two years is there anything you're watching in this race or like any reason you think to have hope that Bibi Netanyahu might finally exit the stage? Well, the thing is, is that the Israeli public has been very constant in its political preferences. And, you know, what people should always remember is the coup will get the most votes of any party, but nowhere near 50 percent. Um, but the problem is that the Likud party, you know, is able to because Israeli politics has moved to the right. Um, is usually able to cobble together a coalition that gets you just above 60 um, in order to keep Netanyahu in power. And the reality here is that Netanyahu probably needs to stay in power to avoid prison. You know, so the incentives are enormous for him to do whatever it takes. I think what's worrisome, he has said publicly in the round of this election that, that he prefers like a hard right government. Like, you know, mm-hmm. no, no, you know, centrist party that he has to rely upon. So you could be looking at, you know, in, in I think the worst case outcome, a uniformly far right uh, Israeli government. Um, the other two scenarios are maybe there's an upset and uh, Lapid, who's like the, the leading opposition figure, is able to cobble together a really bizarre anti Netanyahu coalition that is probably left center and some right uh, and is able to squeak through. Or a third scenario where, you know, Netanyahu uh, can't just rely on right-wing votes, but somehow co-ops some part of the center. Um, I think what's clear is that Israeli politics is paralyzed because of this question of Netanyahu. Uh, You either love him or hate him, and and they they can't, they just can't move forward psychologically. Um, and, And, you know, I think it'd be healthy, frankly, no matter what your political perspective is, to get beyond this one man. Um... But we'll see today what his staying power is. And if the previous elections are an indication, he's probably the more likely person to be the next prime minister, but is not for the fourth time getting a mandate that clears this up because not enough Israelis feel good about Netanyahu uh, to put him in, in a comfort zone here. So we'll see. Yeah, we, we will see. Well, anyway, you know, look, it'll take a while to have some results uh, for the elections. It could take even longer for the government formation process to proceed, you know, upwards of maybe, I think, a month or so. So we'll uh, we'll stay on top of this one and keep our fingers crossed that, uh, you know, there might be a post-Netanyahu future for Israel in the same way we are really enjoying this post-Trump reality we're living in right now. Um, ben, let's talk about uh, Biden's personnel for a minute. So President Biden nominated a guy named Colin Call to be his undersecretary of defense for policy. You know Colin extremely well. Um, That job that he's nominated for is the number three job at the Pentagon. It's a very influential position. Colin is indisputably qualified for this job. In fact, I think he's exceptionally well qualified. He was deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East. He was the national security advisor to Joe Biden when uh, uh, Joe Biden was the vice president. He's out of many other jobs. But 
Colin is facing resistance from Republican senators like Susan Collins, who said she is mad that Colin predicted that moving the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem could create a backlash. Uh, and Colin is also facing resistance from Joe Manchin, a Democratic senator from West Virginia, who is once again, you know, policing old tweets by nominees the way he did with Neera Tandon. Now, you know, Ben, I, I wouldn't call Colin call some sort of lefty liberal. Um but you have a theory about why Colin might be facing resistance from members of the Senate and and what you think the bigger implications of this fight are. Can you explain? Yeah, so I don't think the tweets really come into play here. I mean, that's what they say the reason is, and that's what's got Joe Manchin's, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, social media police badge out. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at his tweets, like these are, these are not even anywhere near what near as were. These are like pretty commonly held views that any Democrat would express online. What's really been happening here is, you know, Tom Cotton is whipping the opposition to this. And there's been a huge effort to cast Colin and right wing media as anti-Israel. And what's at the core of it is Colin was among our most effective public advocates for the Iran nuclear deal in the Obama years. And then during the Trump years was one of the most effective critics of Trump's disastrous decision to pull out of the Iran deal. They're trying to get a scalp on the Iran deal here. And no no mistake here, this is a really important job. This is kind of the job that drives the policy making of the Pentagon, right? Uh, the Secretary of Defense kind of looks over the field. The deputy often is focused on things like acquisition and personnel. This is the person who sits at the table in the sit room for a lot of discussions. And I think this is particularly gross for a number of reasons, right? Number one, if you tally up what Colin said online and certainly what he said about the Iran nuclear deal, he didn't say anything that isn't kind of a mainstream Democratic Party view, including, by the way, the views that Joe Biden himself expressed on the campaign, in part because Colin probably helped prepare him to express those views on the right. campaign. Yeah. And so they're essentially trying to disqualify someone for just having the views of the administration he used to work for, the Obama administration that did the Iran nuclear deal, and the person mm-hmm. he works for who was his boss in the Obama years, right? Um, the second thing, Colin and I were both spied on by Black Cube, uh, the Israeli intelligence outfit that was hired by somebody. <laughs> the Guardian suggested a Trump associate, who knows, but clearly someone who wanted to tear down me and Colin. And it said at the time, because of our work on the Iran deal. And this was particularly gross. A black cube operative re- reached out to Colin's wife and said she wanted to discuss organizing a fundraiser for his kid's preschool, right? I mean, th- this is the lengths that they were going to to kind of somehow dig up dirt or, or intimidate a former public official, right? And you add this together. I, I mean, this man has been subjected to years of, of intimidation and disinformation campaigns online. And if you don't believe me, just consider... Uh, a former Mossad operative reaching out to his wife uh, and trying to organize a fundraiser for his kid's preschool. But also, importantly, he's being torn down because he's such an effective spokesperson for a policy that's unpopular on the right. And if if the Biden team folds, if Joe Manchin folds on this thing, what is the message that's being sent? It's that you, you, you can't you literally can't have appointees who are passionate and effective advocates for Democratic Party policies um, or that you're essentially retroactively validating the kind of thuggish campaign that was waged against Colin for the last few years. That would be both a, a travesty for our you know, national security because we lose Colin and frankly send a signal that we can't have anybody in confirmed jobs 
who can't pass essentially like a Republican test uh, of whether or not they've been critical of Republicans uh, in their history. And again, you're just validating this this boorish behavior that Colin's been subjected to. So this is a big deal because, again, like, you know, just imagine the kind of people who will be left pursuing these jobs. If even Colin Call, who you point out, he's not like a super progressive. Like Colin is a de- no. defense guy, you know. So it's not he's not like this is the they're taking down the the bomb throwing lefty here, or even me, right? Um, this is this is you know this is a very mainstream thinker who just happened to be a passionate and effective advocate for the Iran deal. I also like how these Republicans are trying to push that Colin was somehow anti-Israel and that a bunch of like Israeli retired generals and national security officials came out and they're like, what are you talking about? He had our backs all the time. He got us more funding for the Iron Dome missile defense project. He was meeting with us constantly. Like he is someone who is well within the mainstream uh, of like democratic national security thinking. And you're right. The message that, that bouncing him would send is that like Joe Biden can only hire Republicans to work at the Pentagon. Yeah. Like, what, 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 does he, what is the argument here? Or people who've said nothing critical of like the Trump policies or something. And 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 look, I the the Israeli reaction was interesting because like not just U.S. national security people are vouching for Colin. Like as you said, a lot of Israeli military leaders, because they know you mentioned Iron Dome. Colin was there at the Pentagon in charge of this account when we ramped up this Iron Dome defense system that shoots down rockets coming from Gaza that saved countless Israeli lives. Yep. Like. So all these armchair pro-Israel, you know, Republicans just weaponizing the old, uh, you know, your insufficiently pro-Israel charge, like they've done nothing. They, they can't like light a candle to what Colin Call has done for Israel's security. So yeah. it makes a mockery of that charge, too. Well, hopefully, Holy Manchin uh, stops with the tone policing and comes to his senses here. We can get Colin in soon because he is well qualified and we need him in that job. Um Ben, we've talked a couple of times about vaccine equality and inequality, and I wanted to bring it up again because I was reading a piece in the New York Times and this statistic jumped out at me uh, about global COVID vaccination efforts. Um, of the vaccine doses given globally, roughly three quarters have gone to only 10 countries. At least 30 countries have not injected a single person. The continent of Africa, which has 17% of the world's population, uh, has so far administered roughly 2% of the vaccine doses. Kenya is hoping to inoculate 30% of his population by the middle of 2023. Not 2021, not 2022, 2023. So like, obviously, it it didn't take the pandemic for us to understand the inequality uh, between life in the US and life in Sudan, right? But like, the, the disparity in vaccination timelines for rich white countries, like the US, the UK, Israel, versus Kenya, a relative economic powerhouse is is shocking and it's pretty outrageous. And to be clear, like for those listening, thinking, well, I, you know, I just want to get a vaccine. I want my family to get vaccinated. This will hurt the U.S., right? The virus can mutate. It can come back. It can infect vaccinated people if it keeps changing and spreading. And these vaccination campaigns, if they're delayed, will literally cost the global economy trillions with a T of dollars. Some of the worst case estimates are up to nine trillion. And, and a lot of that economic activity will hit developed countries because we're the ones, you know, selling and buying stuff. So, you know, Ben, all of us have been like laser focused on, you know, the U.S. distribution effort. The Biden administration is focused up on, on you know, providing economic relief to, you know, U.S. citizens who are hurting to get getting jabs and arms. But, you know, like knowing how hard it is to get people in America, especially Republicans, to support, quote unquote, foreign aid. When and how do you think the Biden team 
and the international community should ramp up efforts to help other countries get vaccinated. Because like 2023 for a country like Kenya seems just uh, just outrageously far in the future to me and something we can't allow to happen. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you say. Uh, and, and look, I think what we've seen in this country is that the distribution of the vaccine, it's kind of like a math and logistics issue, right? Yeah. And once you have the vaccine created, when the Biden people came in and you had competent people willing to put resources behind it and just solve logistical problems, suddenly we're at like 3 million doses within a couple of months here. And so globally, th- this is just a math and logistics issue of our nation's going to be willing, richer nations, commit some resources to scale up additional vaccine or to use their surplus vaccine, you know, to to help reach places like Kenya? Uh, And will they work collaboratively and with like the World Health Organization to have the logistics in place to get these vaccines out faster? Um, Because, you know, some parts of, you know, rural uh, Kenya, for instance, are just hard to reach, but but you can do it if the will is there. And the cost is not eye-popping for for this kind of thing. You know, um, you're you're talking in the, the low tens of billions of dollars, I think, from some of the estimates I've seen. If you're pooling that among a bunch of rich countries and channeling in the WHO, and again, working with the pharmaceutical companies that have expressed some concerns, but kind of pushing them and saying, no, guys, this is a global health issue. This is a humanitarian issue. I think this is eminently doable and the Biden team should prioritize this. And you mentioned the current pandemic and how you want to stamp it out and prevent strains from going. But clearly, we need a better global response mechanism anyway. Because Mm -hmm. we're likely going to be dealing, experts say, with more frequent pandemics going forward, given climate change and other issues. And so wouldn't you want this kind of distribution uh, network in place? Wouldn't you want the ability to scale up vaccines and disseminate it globally quickly? So there's all manner of moral and, you know, frankly, kind of security and health reasons for us to be doing this. Yes, agreed. Agreed. I I really hope we focus on this. I was glad we talked last week about the proposal to lift intellectual property rights that would allow other countries to freely manufacture some of these vaccines and treatments and and testing and diagnostics. It seems like the obvious proposal. I'm glad people like Bernie Sanders, Jan Sikowski have been pushing it. And Tommy, one one thing I just want to add, a friend of the pod, Samantha Power, has her confirmation hearing today. Right now, uh, to run USAID, and she this is the perfect person. <laughs> Give Samantha this job because she is dogged and relentless, uh, and she's good at building partnerships with other countries. So, one of the things that I hope to see a Samantha Power doing when she's confirmed at AID is this. Yes, her voice will be heard on this issue and many others. Changing gears here, Ben. The debate me coward uh, Twitter trolling has gone global and has reached the head of the state level. Uh, so, I'm talking about Russia and the U.S. because last week during an interview with ABC News. President Biden was asked whether he thought Russian President Vladimir Putin was a killer. Biden said, I do. And he went on to say that Putin is going to pay for Russian interference in the 2020 election. This went over about as well as you'd expect in Moscow. Uh, Putin's response ranged from suggesting that Biden has dementia by saying, like, I wish you good health, comrade, wink, wink, to pointing the finger back at Biden by saying it takes one to no one. Uh, No word yet if he who smelt it dealt it. So more seriously, Ben, Russia recalled its ambassador to Washington. Uh, They warned of irreversible deterioration of relations. It's always funny when, you know, Russian officials who are cool with like annexing Crimea and murdering (laughs) journalists and poisoning Alexei Navalny, right? They're offended by accurate descriptions of themselves, but whatever. Putin also challenged Biden to a debate, you know, like a little Ben Shapiro move here. So our producer, Jordan Waller, reached out to uh, our friend Alexei Kovlyov at Medusa News uh, in Russia to get a sense of why Putin is leaning so hard into that fight. Let's listen to a clip of their conversation. Putin has a very 
peculiar hierarchy of people he considers to be equal to him. Uh, so he um, he doesn't respect uh, you know sycophants and yes men because of, uh, that's basically everyone around him because he knows better than anyone how cheap they are and uh, uh, th that's really beneath his uh, uh, his station to engage uh, uh, in in a dialogue as equals. A lot of people have called Putin names over the years, but I don't think it's ever elicited such a Heated reaction, Putin seems to have taken it quite close to heart if he, you know, chose to quite unceremoniously for him, really, uh, to uh, challenge a president of another country to a live debate. <laughs> On the other hand, I don't think it's, uh, uh, it's going to have, like, really far-fetching consequences uh, for the U.S.-Russian relations as bad as they are uh, at the moment. Alexei also noted that Russian state media, you know, looks a lot like primetime Fox News these days. They're looping video of Biden tripping when he was walking up the stairs. They're accusing him of having dementia. Um, again, everyone should check out Medusa News. They do like really impressive investigative reporting out of Russia, which is uh, not the safest job in the world. So thank you to them. Um, so, Ben, on the one hand, Putin is a killer. That's just a fact. We shouldn't pretend yeah. otherwise. On the other hand, He's a thin-skinned, whiny little killer. <laughs> and this war of words might make him more difficult to work with or give him a pretext to worsen relations. Are, are you worried about this latest controversy? Should we be more worried about the sanctions that the U.S. just put on Russia? Like, how are you viewing this one? No, I, look, I think this was uh, performative by Putin. I mean, just consider this, Tommy. Like, this is the first time they've recalled an ambassador since the 1990s, when the hmm. before Putin, when the U.S. bombed Iraq. Uh, now... Consider everything that's happened since <laughs> the invasion of, uh, you know, Crimea and Ukraine, U.S. sanctions, uh, U.S. pulling out of, you know, all kinds of arms control treaties, backs and forth across the board. This tells me that I don't think Joe Biden calling Putin a killer is like the most consequential event that's happened in the 21st century. Right. So part of this, I think, is Putin just kind of performing, trying to brush back Biden, trying to gin up his kind of nationalist media machine at home, kind of trolling Biden a little bit with some of the same content on their state media, as you said, that's on Fox. I should point out that some of the conspiracy theories actually started first in Russian disinformation mm -hmm. campaigns and then made its way to Fox. Um, but I also think that it demonstrates like a real vulnerability of Putin. Um, you know, he seems to be much more thin-skinned about criticism of anything inside of Russia than what he does outside of Russia. You know, it's like we could say whatever we want about what he's doing in, in Ukraine or what he did in Syria, and he would never respond like this. But once you start to talk about what he does in Russia, and Biden, I think, was referring to, you know, he's a killer because he's killed uh, opponents, um, he, he goes apoplectic in the same mm -hmm. way that Navalny drives him apoplectic. And this is a guy, I think, that doesn't feel like he's on as firm political footing as he probably did a decade ago because of what Navalny's done, because of corruption, because the system is atrophied, because it's increasingly clear that he is a killer uh, who's silenced critics around the world. Um, so I, I think it sets up an interesting dynamic where the Biden people have to judge how often are they they hitting this, this funny bone, if you will, this, this uh, nerve spot uh, around issuing more direct criticism of of his domestic policies and domestic approaches. Um, look, at the end of the day, the U.S. and Russia like are accustomed to having huge fights about some things and working together on others. Like at the at the absolute rock bottom of U.S.-Russian relations 
after the invasion of Ukraine and at the height of the Syrian civil war, they did the Iran nuclear deal with us. You know, so it's possible to walk and chew gum here. But I think the space to watch again is how much the the, the Biden people focus in on Putin's domestic political vulnerabilities, his corruption, and how does Putin respond to this? The debate. The only other thing I noticed, Tommy, is you see all those Republicans like kind of taking Putin's side in the debate. They love it. They, they, they love the right wing loves to jump on board the Putin train and pretend that he's tough and, you know, criticize Biden for not debating him. It's so pathetic. But also, I know that like recalling your ambassador is a big deal, but didn't it just seem kind of like petulant and weak? It just seems kind of pathetic to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I know we're going to talk about China later, too, but like yeah, similar dynamic there. Yeah. Russia and China, like, you know, if, if you're so strong, why, why are you so sensitive about pretty routinized criticism? <laughs> you know, the, like it's actually not unlike Colin Call's tweets, like, you know, a, an American thinking that Putin's a killer or criticizing Chinese human rights. Like there's a sensitivity here that doesn't feel like strength to me. Um, no. And, you know, and I, I was just going to say about the Republicans, like, Part of this is just trolling Democrats, but part of it is like Putin is, you know, he's anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-LGBT, kind of white, patriarchal, embraces the Russian Orthodox Church. Like there's a lot more in common. This isn't just an alliance of convenience. Like like Republicans look at Putin and find more to agree with than with Joe Biden. Oh, but Putin would do better in Iowa than Mike Pompeo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. And that, I mean, that tells you, I mean, we're pretty far away from Ronald Reagan evil empire here. Yeah, right? we're not we're not tearing down that wall anymore. Um, you mentioned no. China. So let's just jump to that. So on Monday, the U.S., Canada, the U.K. and the European Union announced sanctions on Chinese officials believed to be connected to the ongoing genocidal campaign about the Uyghur Muslim minority in Western China. And for years now, we've talked about this many times, the Chinese government has been building massive concentration camps to imprison an estimated million or more Uyghurs in Western China. The Chinese government says this is about fighting terrorism. This, these are re-education camps. Like, that's their best case, right? But the reality is truly horrific. Uh, many Uyghurs have been tortured. Women have been raped. They've been forced to work in factories. It's the worst thing you could imagine. It's it's a genocidal crime against humanity. The U.S. sanctions target two specific individuals. Uh, one leads the Xinjiang province production and construction corps. The other leads the Xinjiang public security program. That Xinjiang is the, the part of China where this is happening. The sanctions announcement comes after a tense meeting between a U.S. delegation led by Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and their Chinese counterparts last week in Alaska. Politico's Nahal Tusi you know, broke the story about the sanctions and reported that the EU sanctions on China over the Uyghurs were believed to be the first sanctions from Europe against China since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. So that does speak to the significance. Yeah. You know, Ben, so this kind of like coordinated action by the U.S. and allies has been sort of the approach you've been talking about for a while. We've been talking about it in the show. The U.S. has also uh, announced sanctions on 24 officials linked to China's effort to destroy democracy in Hong Kong. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on this sanctions announcement, whether it was a good idea or not, and more broadly on that like testy exchange between Tony, Jake, and this Chinese delegation and what it might say about the future of U.S.-China relations? So uh, I think this is uh, a really welcome step. Um, and, 
you know, part of what's happened in the past is that China is very good at bullying individual countries. And so individual countries are kind of afraid to speak out against Chinese human rights abuses because if, if one European country does it, they get smacked down by the Chinese and they suffer uh, you know, a trade reprisal action or something. Uh, and, and part of what we've talked about on this podcast, and I, you know, frankly, spent the last few years talking a lot to people like Jake and Tony about this, is can the U.S. join hands with other countries, with the EU, with Canada, and hopefully you know, with some Asian allies, Australia, Japan, others, so that suddenly it's 50% of the global economy raising their mm-hmm. voice together, not just the U.S. from our own narrow perspective, or not just Europe, not just obviously a country like Canada that's smaller and more vulnerable. And so their their capacity to line up, you know, most of the democratic, small d democratic world to do this, I think, is is a powerful signal that China is going to get some some long deserved scrutiny on on its human rights record. Um, the the exchange similarly in Alaska, part of what was interesting to me is that the Biden people put some of these sanctions on like leading into that summit. Yeah, and norm and that's what provoked the Chinese because normally you try to kind of keep the the deck pretty clear. <laughs> you know, you're not doing Taiwan arms sales and you're not sanctioning Chinese officials like in the run up to your summit. But I, the Biden people, I think, are, are sending a very interesting message of like, guys, no more constraints here. Like, you know, you, you, what you've done on Jingjiang province with the Uyghurs, what you're doing in Hong Kong, the degree to which you're pushing people around, you know, we're, we're just going to push back and you're just going to have to get accustomed to that. And I think the Chinese outburst was you know, intended to kind of signal their their displeasure at that, maybe brush the Biden people back. And but also, you know, in fairness to the Chinese, say, like, we don't care if you push us back. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And it sets up a, a pretty scratchy dynamic for U.S.-China relations going forward. But I think necessary. And, and the, the one comment we'll be unpacking for the you know, next you know year, this question of like, how do you balance getting you know firmer on issues like human rights with not wanting to get into a cold war? It's not it's not a binary choice between like looking the other way on Jingjiang province and Hong Kong and being in a full blown cold war. Like I support a really aggressive multilateral effort to spotlight Chinese human rights abuses. I support the Biden team, you know, pointing to China and saying, "Hey, we got to invest in infrastructure. We got to invest in R and D because they're out competing us." I support, you know, even efforts to kind of work multilaterally uh, on issues like the South China Sea to say, hey, we're going to be speaking together with some other countries here. You guys can't just go and kind of claim a whole body of water for yourself. We're going to try to force this into some international process. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use China to justify a trillion dollar defense budget and a saber rattle and risk a conflict. There's ways of being tougher, quote unquote, tougher, although I think that word is drained of meeting in national security. But but certainly more confident about your values um, and more confident in trying to lead fellow democracies in advocating for human rights uh, without falling into a Cold War. And while acknowledging, as the Biden people did, like, hey, we know we're in a glass house. <laughs> the best thing we can do for democracy is fix it at home. We get that, you know, but that doesn't mean we're going to be silent about Hong Kong. Yeah. And like, and like to further this sort of can you walk and chew gum? Can you fight and talk point? I saw that John Kerry, the U.S. Uh, climate envoy, is meeting with his Chinese counterpart at a virtual conference on climate change today, Tuesday. This conference is in preparation for another 
still virtual, Global Climate Summit on April 22nd, where Biden is expected to roll out new climate goals and targets, and then also have a virtual meeting with Xi Jinping, the president of China. So, you know, it's interesting that we are having these blowups, but the U.S. is also asking the Chinese to commit to stronger CO2 reductions like the same month. Yeah, I think I I think, yeah, I think the dynamic you want is that we are working collaboratively with China on climate. We are trying to work together to deal with this crisis for humanity. We're working, by the way, hopefully collaboratively with China on global health and vaccine dissemination and things like that, while having like very vigorous debates, arguments, you know, fights, not military ones, but diplomatic ones about these other issues, you know, and I think that that that's fine. I mean, it was we should just pause here, Tommy, it's a wild I mean, I, I, I world should understand what happened in Anchorage where, you know, basically Tony and Jake gave opening statements for like a couple minutes. And then the Chinese guy went off for like, like 20 minutes. Yeah. And then Tony called back in the press so he could make another statement from the press. This may have looked kind of boring, like a, you know, a horseshoe shaped table in a room and some reporters. It's the analogy for sports fans of like during the warm ups where they're introducing the teams, like one guy just going over and punching some guy in the face. And the other know, team. This, this, I mean, this, in diplomacy, this was like WrestleMania, you know, 100. No, uh, no, this, this was Malice at the Palace. Tony Blinken yeah, was yeah. Meta World Peace. He was up in the, <laughs> he was up in the stand. No, too, like we used to joke back in, in the Obama White House that like we would call a meeting a Chinese bilat when it just felt like everyone literally had scripted talking points that they were going to yeah. read going in. There were no surprises. There were no conversations. For this to turn into like a, a, a verbal boxing match was, it was re- pretty remarkable. I'll, and I'll say this for the Chinese perspective of the Chinese foreign minister who like went off on the US and went off on our racism and fine, you know, like le- like let's just kind of have the, the debate, right? Like to people who are worried about this, I actually found it healthy because usually you meet the Chinese and you don't, you know, you dance around stuff and they dance around stuff, too. Like they probably believe every word that the farm minister said. And, you know, a lot of what he said, you know, is true, even if he torqued it up. Uh, we obviously believe a lot of things about Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang province and the Chinese kind of totalitarian model they're building. Why not have debates in public? Like I thought that was in a way, even if it was diplomatically, you know, uh, off-putting, um, I think it was useful. And I, I think that Tony and Jake did the right thing in in getting a last word in there. Yeah, credit to them. It was not going to be a pleasant meeting with with unpleasant topics, but the alternative is doing what Trump did, which is tell Xi Jinping that, that building concentration camps for the Uyghurs is the right thing to do and just literally not caring as the Hong Kong democracy is being smothered. So you know, good for those guys for having a very uncomfortable meeting uh, in front of a bunch of reporters. Um, Ben, let's turn to the UK for a minute, because last week we talked about protests and vigils against gender-based violence uh, in the UK and the murder by a police officer of a woman named Sarah Everard. Over the weekend, there were even more protests uh, across Britain about a bill in the British Parliament that would create harsher penalties for certain crimes and would give police more authority to break up and criminalize protests. It could include, this bill would include penalties of up to 10 years in prison for individuals who damage memorials or statues. And you know, I think it was lost on anyone that over the summer, a statue of a literal slave trader was ripped down in Bristol and thrown into Bristol Harbor, which was fucking awesome. Uh, but this bill <laughs> yeah. seems to be a response to that. And like it reminds all of us, I think, of Trump's executive order in defense of Confederate monuments that should also get torn down. Um, friend of the pod, David Lammy has been forcefully calling bullshit on this bill uh, and the fact that parliament seems far more interested in willing to criminalize 
protesters than to protect British citizens, especially women, from violence. This bill will now go to a committee, then the House of Commons. If you want to read more, uh, check out David Lamy's Twitter feed. Uh, there's been lots of great coverage in, in the BBC and other places. Uh, ben, is canceling protests technically defined as part of cancel culture, or does that only def- like apply to stupid debates around children's books? How should we view this? Well, I, I think what's interesting to me about this, and I've talked to David Lamy about this, is you know Brit- British politics and American politics tend to be mirror images of each other, and you know the when the the right wing attacks on defund the police and cancel culture picked up here over the summer, they began to pick up there, but also what usually happens in our right wing politics kind of slowly goes global too. <laughs> Um, sometimes not so slowly. And sometimes we're on the receiving end of that and sometimes we're the distributor. I I say that to make the point that cancel culture, I I apologize to people in other countries, it's going to be a thing like everywhere. You know, every right-wing leader in in any Western democracy is going to be starting to trot out the statue defense, you know, Um, and and, and that's kind of depressing. So I I do think, what does that mean? I I think it also means though that we, people on the the progressive end, even center left, you know, Labor Party and Democrats and other uh, others across uh, the democratic world, you know, need to share, you know, ideas about how do you push back on cancel culture BS? How do you protect basic rights like protests? Like we have a stake in this debate in Britain, uh, just as they have a stake in us not going totally insane and, and Trumpy in the last election. Um, because, um, you know, I think we're in an era now where this kind of cancel culture thing is the next phase of the global culture war. It, it, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. It is constant. And I think we as liberals and we as progressives look at it, think it's stupid. We're right that it's stupid. But unfortunately, there's a bunch of polling data that shows that this cancel culture fight might be the way Republicans are able to reach younger voters. And so I do think we need to think through ways to talk about it that are just, I don't know, smarter, better able to undercut Republican arguments, which are usually in bad faith. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I hate that this is what we talk about. It sucks. Well, and I think, though, it's a good reminder, as with our politics here, like, I always forget how conservative, like, England is, you know, mm-hmm. um, because most people I know, maybe everybody I know, and I know a lot of Brits, would think that this bill's ridiculous. But they also tend to think Boris Johnson's ridiculous. And again, it's like such a London prism that that foreigners have of the UK, um, you know, you have to remember that like it's a you know the Tories have r- run that place for, with the exception of Tony Blair, who wasn't exactly like a huge progressive, and, and briefly Gordon Brown for the better part of the last few decades. And you know, you have to convince some of those people, just as that the Democratic Party has to somehow both keep our base energized and mobilized and and appeal to some people who disagree with us. The British Labour Party, if they want to come in from the wilderness under Keir Starmer, their their relatively new leader, are going to have to figure out how to do both, how to hold together the left um, and and appeal to some of these people that have, you know, are, are somewhat susceptible to these cancel culture arguments. Yeah, and, and do so under the uh, decrepit racist thumb of Rupert Murdoch, which makes it all yeah. that much harder. Yeah. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Okay, let's talk about a little bit of rare hopeful news uh, out of Yemen. Earlier this week, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister proposed a peace plan to end the war in Yemen after six long, awful years. Uh, This plan recommends a ceasefire that would be overseen by the United Nations. It recommends political negotiations and then the reopening of ports and airports that could hopefully be used to allow humanitarian relief into Yemen. This fighting started back in 2014 when the Houthi rebels seized control of much of Western Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia then cobbled together a coalition to try to take that territory back. The Saudi coalition was initially backed by the U.S. by President Obama. Obama pulled back that support. But then when Trump took office, he doubled down on supporting the Saudis. Uh, and you know the, the result was a estimated 20 million people in Yemen on the edge of starvation and in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. Um, Ben, this isn't the first attempt at a ceasefire in Yemen. It is the first with President Biden's renewed focus on the problem. uh, And it's the first after his decision to cut off U.S. support for offensive Saudi operations in this fighting. How hopeful are you about this iteration of a a peace plan might work? I mean, you know, I'm glad they're doing something. Um, I hope it works out. Um, I do want to see kind of what the follow through is here. I mean, because here's the basic problem, right? The the Saudis are not going to accomplish what their objective was when they went to war, which is kind of wipe out Houthi influence. Um, and the Houthis, by the way, are not going to accomplish their maximalist objectives of you know conquering the capital city. Um, and so whenever you're trying to enter a diplomatic negotiation where, where both sides are going to in some way lose, <laughs> um, it's very challenging. I think that the overwhelming focus, though, has to be on ceasefire and humanitarian access, Um, just getting help to people as fast as possible while you're resolving these political issues. And in that context, the U.S. saying we will provide no support to any military operations, offensive, frankly, or I mean, defensive. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm always curious for how they define that. Missile defense uh, or something. I'm not sure. Missile yeah. defense is fine, right? But like, you know, defensive. You know, the Saudis probably might argue that bombing some target in Yemen is a defensive measure, right? So my point is, if we pull the, if we truly pull the plug, they they can't really sustain uh, their operations either. So hopefully, the combination of getting, if you can get a ceasefire. Um, and start to get aid in on the ground. And the U.S. just saying, we're out. We're totally out. We've unplugged uh, from anything the Saudis are going to do in the territory of Yemen, period. Um, Then I think you have some real hope. The political questions may drag on, uh, what the political future of Yemen looks like may drag on. 
But uh, like if you can just get to a place where you're, you're stopping the bombardment and you're, you're saving lives again with the assistance, uh, again, another priority, I'm sure, for Samantha Power, at least you're in an improved situation. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, it, it's worth noting that, you know, the initial Houthi response wasn't all that positive, but we'll no. we'll keep keep an eye on this one. Uh, and by the talk- way, the Iranians, I mean, we we, we usually, right. keep, you know, I, I'm going to be very clear here, like the Iranians too, like should um, recognize the interest in, in, in this process as well. Although I don't think that they control the Houthis as a proxy as much as, as people think. The Houthis live in Yemen. They've always lived in Yemen. Right. I agree with that. Okay. Let's turn to South America and talk about uh, Joe Biden and drug policy. So I was reading about how Colombia is planning to restart a program of spraying toxic chemicals on cocoa crops in an effort to reduce cocaine production. Uh, And they are, Colombia is doing so with the support of the Biden administration. Colombia had stopped this spraying program because of concerns that the chemical being sprayed, which is the active ingredient in the weed killer Roundup, causes cancer, causes other harmful health problems, kills off other flora and fauna, and just like really harms people who are living there. Um, Critics also argue that these spraying programs disproportionately hurt small farmers who are trying to eke out a living, you know, growing whatever crop they can, rather than targeting like the labs where cocaine is processed or going after cartels themselves. Um, The spraying is also just generally considered expensive and ineffective. So Trump had pushed Colombia to resume this spraying program, but now the Biden team seems to support it. Ben, I was reading about how this is also initially part of Plan Colombia, which is this yeah. you know, multi-decade, multi-billion-dollar effort to fight against cocaine production in Colombia and to combat the rebel group there called the FARC. But interestingly, part of the you know peace agreement with the FARC in 2016 included an agreement to stop spraying these crops. So it seems like you know resuming this activity could screw up that peace deal. Um, Spring programs like this have been used in a lot of other places, right? Like quite controversially in Afghanistan, you could go back to Agent Orange. Um, I don't know a lot about the details of these programs, but like in the research I did on this, I didn't see a single person say, yeah, this is a great idea. This is a really effective way to you know, combat drugs. Why do you think President Biden supports these sort of counter drug spraying programs. And, and could it be the case that just drug policy generally is an area where he is a little more conservative than, you know, sort of maybe the consensus democratic view? Yeah, I, I look, I just think of the places you've referenced, Colombia, Afghanistan, like I, these spraying programs don't work, you know, like among many other things. Um, and, you know, part of what happened, I, I got involved, Tommy, in the, the negotiation of that peace agreement in Colombia. Uh, in 2016, because it was negotiated in Havana, the Cubans were involved with the FARC. And part of what happened here is, you know, when you go from kind of fighting a war um, and contesting certain parts of the country to to peace, you started seeing more cocoa production. Um, And because of the dynamics of the drug trade, some of the the intensity shifted back to Colombia. And so why does this happen? I think as, you know, politicians are looking at graphs and seeing, you know, cocaine exports from Colombia going up. And it's like, what's our solution? Oh, we'll do the spring program. You know, like right. it's it's a lack of other options. Right. You know, it's like it's that impulse that you remember from working in national security, like let's do something, right? It's why you always end up sanctioning people. Like what what do we do when there's more drugs? We should spray them. But the problem is the, the spraying programs are part of a war on drugs mindset 
that has utterly failed in every way, shape, and form. You know, it's it's punished the wrong populations often. Often, in this case, could punish farmers and local communities. Um, it 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 hasn't stopped the sale where people want drugs. They find figure out ways to get them. So I think Biden may be you know falling prey here to the like briefing with the graph on it that shows the cocaine production going up, and this is what you know is is being presented as the only thing to do. I think what we need in the Americas is a, a real conversation about drug policy and, and legalization, candidly. Um, and maybe I don't necessarily think that means legalizing cocaine, but marijuana, like more and more countries are moving in that direction. Um, what is a, a multifaceted policy look like that involves, yeah, maybe you're trying to, to crack down on certain crops, but you're trying to separate out drugs that are being legalized and regulated versus drugs that are still uh, funneling through cartels. By the way, what you hear time and again from people south of our border is it's American demand and American guns that fuel this whole thing, right? It's the American drug users who drive up the price. Um, and if marijuana is legalized, that at least takes that uh, off the table um, or somewhat off the table because you obviously still have cocaine and heroin and stuff. But then also unregulated guns, how, what do you think the cartels are killing each other with? So we need a kind of a broad, comprehensive conversation in, in the Americas about drug policy and we need to move beyond just the spray it or, you know, have it uh, funneled through the cartels approach. Yeah, it felt very, felt very dated. Um, well, let's keep talking about Biden and drugs for a minute, because the Daily Beast reported that dozens of staffers who I, I guess, you know, worked on uh, maybe the Biden campaign and wanted to work in the White House have been prevented from doing so because of their personal recent marijuana use. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, our very good friend, released a statement saying that, you know, only five White House staffers actually lost jobs because of this, you know, sort of no tolerance policy seemingly on marijuana. I I don't know the specifics of these individual cases. It could be the case that people were misleading on their forms. It could have been very recent drug use. I I don't know. I'm not judging the Biden aspect of this. But more broadly, I don't understand, Ben, why – marijuana use is part of the SF-86, which is the form that we all had to fill out, the government questionnaire and background check process that you have to go through to get a security clearance. So a dozen states, more than a dozen states have legalized marijuana, dozens more have legalized medical marijuana. The suggestion that smoking marijuana or taking an edible or you know something you can do, you can buy in a store here in California, doing that on occasion means you can't be trusted with national security information. It's fucking ludicrous. It's like, it's like a, a scene out of Reefer Madness from another time, right? It, like it, that is no different than having a beer at night or a glass of wine. Like, I, why do you think the intelligence community wastes its time looking into these like drug use questions? Is this just inertia? H- how is this the process <laughs> that we've decided protects national security information? Something, uh, by the way, the intelligence community has really struggled to do in recent years yeah. for very different reasons. I think this is insane and absurd and offensive and actually important. Um, I'm not just saying that because like, I don't know if I'm adding anybody here, but like the entire crooked media family of former Obama staff, like (laughs) probably had this on our forms and got our clearances. Absolutely. Uh, I I mean, I was the deputy national security advisor with a top secret secure compartmented information clearance and I smoked marijuana and put it down in my form. So I, I was look. I love Gentaki like a sister. Uh, I was a little mystified by her statement that that they had changed the policies to make them more liberal because I don't remember anybody getting fired in our White House for marijuana use. But put that aside, um, 
there's one, the issue of legality, which is absurd because I can walk out the door and make a left on Abbot Kinney and walk into MedMen and buy drugs and use them perfectly legally on the street in my home. And you're telling me that because I undertook legal behavior, that if I got a job in the White House, um, I, I, I'd get fired because I did that. Like, like, mo- like a good chunk of the country, not most yet, but I think a good chunk live in states where this is legal. And so you're essentially saying you're going to disqualify people from White House or national security jobs for engaging in legal behavior where they live. That just is not fair, right? The second thing is your thing about national security, like it used to be that one of the main things you're looking for in that clearance is blackmail, right? Could you be Mm -hmm. blackmailed, right? And so it used to be like drug use was such a taboo that like you wouldn't want someone to know that you used to use drugs. Well, it's not taboo at all. And Parkinson's is legal in a lot of places. And, and, and yeah, the idea that, uh, like, honestly, s- someone who's done both drinking feels much more re- relevant here. <laughs> you know, like whether s- someone is out drunk and, and approached by foreign intelligence operators who take advantage of them being very drunk, that feels like uh, like a bigger risk than someone sitting at home, you know, watching whatever on Netflix and having an edible. It just doesn't make any sense. So, no, it really doesn't. Uh, on its, this is, and, and they're human beings here. And, but and this gets to why it's important. And it gets to your question. Some of this is like cultural, cultural sorting out. Like, you know, some of the people went into national security and law enforcement, didn't like the people who did drugs in college or something. And, and I'm not assigning that huge motivation, but I think part of it's bureaucratic inertia, but this connects to the call and call discussion. Just think of the message that's being sent. If we say our national security establishment the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, the intelligence community. We don't want anybody who expresses views like Colin Calls about issues, i.e. views that are like pretty mainstream progressive. We don't want anybody who's ever used marijuana. Like who is left, right? A very particular kind of person. And I like a lot of those people. <laughs> but but don't we want, quote unquote, diversity in national security workforce? And, and diversity should mean absolutely racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity. But it should also mean like different kinds of people, you know? And, well, and again, just th- think who you're sorting out if you say nobody who's used marijuana can work in these jobs. It, yeah, you're like to your point. I, I believe uh, was it Carter Page? Which one of the dumb Trump morons got drunk and told the Australians that the Trump campaign had found Hillary's emails, oh, right? Pa- so Papadopoulos, right? Yeah, yeah Papadopoulos. Yeah. Thank you. I forgot <laughs> yeah, which yeah, moron yeah. it was, right? So clearly alcohol was a factor there that made him not trustworthy with national security sensitive information. But to the broader point about the clearance process, it's not clear in any way. There's no clear expectation going in about what the benchmarks you have to meet are, right? Like you can't go to the yeah. intelligence community website where it says you can't have smoked marijuana for three years, right? That's because it's not uniform among different components of the intelligence community. Like the FBI has like sort of well known for having the strictest uh, rules when it comes to drug use. Uh, the CIA, maybe because you know, CIA operatives traffic in some, you know, darker places have a little less strict rules. Um, Members of the intelligence community have to take a polygraph. You and I did not have to take a polygraph, a lie detector test, right? Like these, these policies are all over the place. And I don't know, certainly they've like served a lot of people well and, and led to them protecting national security information, but there also have been massive 
<laughs> unbelievable, historically damaging leaks uh, of, you know, the, the crown jewels yeah. of the NSA and, you know, WikiLeaks and, and all these other, you know, Snowden, all these pieces of information that have clearly nothing to do with whether like Edward Snowden took an edible and played like, you know, World of Warcraft for a couple hours. It's ridiculous. I think, it, it, you know, the whole thing should be scrapped. I mean, certainly the marijuana thing, but this whole clearance process needs to be rethought of what are yes. you guarding against? What are you protecting against? Uh, let me add another. Andy Kim, uh, you know, friend of mine, congressman from New Jersey, had an amazing thread about he's, you know, of Korean origin. Mm-hmm. And when he worked at state, they told him he wasn't allowed to work on issues related to Korea. Really? And he's like, yeah, and he and he writes a great thread on Twitter. People should check it out of how painful that was to him that he's a Korean American. And they basically were like, well, you can't work on this issue. They, uh, trust me, they don't tell Tom Malinowski, you know, who's a Polish origin, that he was a member of Congress, also from New Jersey, that he can't work on Polish issues. Right. Yeah. And he was making the point about racial profiling. So at the end of the day, like we want people from from all backgrounds to be participating because it's 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 right. It's the right thing to do. And I think it's like the right thing to do that you don't punish people for engaging in legal behavior with marijuana, but you also want diverse perspectives on these issues. You know, why do you think there's such groupthink in American national security, like the blob, the term that uh, I'm both famous and derided for for coining, is about groupthink. I want people of different life experiences, different ethnic backgrounds. America should have a great asset in being this big, sprawling country with people from everywhere. Uh, with all different kinds of life experiences. And if we kind of force self-censorship of opinion because of the call and call stuff, and we force self-censorship of behavior, the only people capable of being in these jobs are people who like set out to be in them from the time they were like 13 years old. And that's crazy. Yeah, come on. So let's normalize, you know, a couple of visits to a festival or something in your life. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> live, live a little, for fuck's sake. Live a little. Uh, two more quick things. So um, let's start in, in Myanmar. Uh, two updates out of Myanmar. The first is just horrible. Uh, a, a refugee camp in Bangladesh for the Rohingya, a, a Muslim ethnic minority group that was terrorized uh, and driven out of Myanmar, you know, estimates of up to 700,000 people. This refugee camp where they've all been, you know, living temporarily now for years in in Bangladesh, basically burned to the ground this week. Dozens are dead, hundreds are missing. Uh, the the scale of the suffering for the Rohingya is just unfathomable, and so we'll keep an eye out for any kind of you know humanitarian relief efforts or, or places people can donate to because they need the help. Second, Ben, uh, on Friday of last week, the House of Representatives voted on a piece of legislation condemning the military coup in Myanmar. Now, obviously, this is a symbolic vote. The symbolism matters in foreign policy. 14 Republicans voted against the bill. 14 Republicans voted against condemning a military coup. Uh, the infamous racist lunatic Paul Gosar of Arizona voted present. The 14 Republican no votes are the worst of the worst people in the GOP, or I guess really the country. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren The world. Robert, I'd, I'd yeah, say the, the world. world the yeah, world. Yeah. Matt Geitz. What the fuck, man? Like, what wh- what do you think motivated this? Like, did they view this as some sort of oblique shot at Trump since he attempted to stage a coup in the Capitol on January 6th? I think it's the only way you can explain that collection of people voting this way. And you saw, like, you know, the, the military in, in Myanmar said that there was election fraud. And when the commission that had to make a determination about that didn't side with them, they launched a coup. And, and, you know, Matt Gates and all, all these armchair, like, you know, neo-fascist uh, Republicans, like, clearly looked at that and saw something to validate 
or else why else would they vote this way or why else would you be pro coup uh, the, they're they're shooting young people in the streets and this is how these people vote i mean it's a disgrace it's an absolute disgrace um and the one thing i'd say about the rohingya tommy is like and talking to some activists too is like now's the time one other thing the biden people could do if they're looking for tools is you know uh international justice you know um and and the icc uh when you're talking about the military and, and what was done to the rohingya but also what they're doing now in the coup um you know, uh, we've had a complicated relationship with the ICC, but but referring this kind of thing for investigation, sending a message that the U.S. is going to support international justice for for these people for what they did the Rohingya and what they're doing now, um, I think should be something the Biden administration takes a look at at least. It's a good idea. Uh, last thing before we get to my interview, uh, since I am uh, you know have the privilege of sitting with America's premier royal correspondent, uh, I just read today that Prince Harry got a job. He will be the chief impact officer at a startup called Better Up Inc. Uh, the Wall Street Journal described the company as a coaching and a mental health firm. Uh, I don't, like with most tech companies, even Harry's description of what he'll be doing didn't totally make sense to me. Maybe he'll figure out as he goes along. Obviously, mental health is a critical issue. Generally, it's an important issue for him. Uh, he's been outspoken and, and honest about it and like really a credit to him. But Ben, question for you. I did not know that Harry was looking for a job. Did you know this and did we miss a chance to get him to Crooked Media? Uh, could he have been a third co-host or are we too liberal? Rural correspondent. Um, he could have been the rural correspondent. Um, hmm. I-, I will say better up. It sounds like the I'd never heard of betterup.com, and it sounds like something they would advertise during a podcast. It does. So maybe does. he could do like he could do ad reads. Yeah, um, maybe it's how we like. Uh, maybe it's a better way to to you know expense your receipts, or <laughs> maybe it's uh, actually maybe it's illegal marijuana. For I, well, that helps with mental health. I mean, I, I would say that um, what it tells me is like the guy is like. I mean, he's all in on his US life post royals, you know, you know what I mean? Like he, 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 he's got his Netflix thing. The Netflix thing is like, that's one thing he could do, but clearly he's looking to have a diverse source of income here. And it's California based. Like, you know, Harry is, Harry is definitely out. <laughs> um, and he's definitely, you know, better up for him. Yeah. The boats were burned long before the Oprah interview for Harry. It seems like he is very cool with this choice here. Um, yeah. I don't know, Harry, come on the show. We'd love to talk to you. We can talk yeah. about literally anything you want. Anything. I, don't, I don't really give a shit about what your family is up to. Like, we'll talk about the, the, your time in Afghanistan or the charity work you're doing. I don't know. Same pitch for Amal Clooney. I'd love to have Amal Clooney on the show to talk about what it means to be like an international humanitarian human rights attorney. I do not give a shit about your marriage, your husband's movies, Hollywood. It would just be really cool to hear about how like citizen lawyers can help advance foreign policy. That's very interesting to me. Well, I've told you that my Amal Clooney stories are like, I met with her when she was working for the UN Rapporteur on Drones at the White House. Um, I bet. And, that was probably she, fun for you. It was not fun. <laughs> Amal Clooney's a good lawyer and grilled my ass for an hour about drone policy. Um, and and this is like right before, I guess, they started dating. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And I've talked to her about, she, does, she takes up, Interesting human rights cases, like the Filipino yeah. journalist, um, yes. Maria Ressa. Um, I talked to her about that case. Yeah, we should have her on. Harry, you know, come on, talk about better up, you know, um, we're game. Cool. 
Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and then when we come back, you will hear my conversation with Jugmeet Singh uh, about Canadian politics and all kinds of fun stuff. And he's a really cool, fascinating guy. And it was a lot of fun. So stick around for that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. We are so excited to welcome on the show today Jugmeet Singh. He's a member of the Canadian Parliament. He's the leader of Canada's New Democratic Party. Jugmeet, it is so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So a lot of us have been following your career from afar. Uh, I imagine that over the past four years, a lot of listeners have thought more seriously about moving to Canada than they had previously. So <laughs> this conversation feels timely. Can we just start with like a quick Canadian politics 101? Because in the U.S., it is so binary, right? It's Republicans versus Democrats. And then, right. you know, occasionally some asshole billionaire pretends he's going to run as an independent, right? <laughs> but for you guys, it, it, it's a little more motley. Can you give us a quick overview of the parties in the system in Canada? And if there's a good point of comparison for your views and your party, the new Democratic Party uh, here in the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. I think it's so important because the conversation is going to be a little bit confusing to American listeners who have a different definition of the word liberal. So we have uh, three major political parties that are recognized in parliament right now. And right now the government is a liberal party, which is widely known as a centrist party, openly centrist. And then, uh, but often they campaign a bit more on the left, but then they govern a bit more on the right. So mm -hmm. that is that has been their experience. We've got a conservative party, which is very much the right-wing party. And then New Democrats are really the, the left-wing party. We were founded by um, a coalition of labor movement activists and labor unions, as well as uh, progressive farmers at the time. So our history is very much in, in workers and we are a people's party. And so we are the, the progressive party in Canada. There are other parties as well. The other party that is in parliament, though not large enough to be an official party is the Green Party, which uh, is a party that's known around the world. I guess they've got an international kind of uh, affiliation as well. But yeah, we are the progressive party in Canada and we're the new Democrats. Excellent. That's very helpful. Um, and then just like, I want to get to policy, but just a little about you. I mean, I think a lot of listeners might have seen viral clips of you <laughs> in these really intense moments, right? Where the, like, there's ignorant hecklers are in your face and you show this just like uh, inhuman grace and uh, patience with them. You've also written a, a really candid book about the challenges you face as a, like your family growing up. Could you just tell us a, a little bit about yourself, why you wanted to run for office in the first place? Like what animates you? What, why do you get up in the morning and do this? Yeah, I love this question. When I speak to people, I always want to know like what, what makes them tick, what they care about. For me, uh, I, I've experienced some of the struggles that people experience. Like I, in, in a little way, like my family went through financial struggles because of my dad's addiction. Uh, I've known what it's like to live with someone that you love and care about, but then hurts everyone around them because of his addiction. So my dad was dealing with alcoholism that really informed my life. Uh, we, at one point, were very financially stable. My dad was a doctor, but then when he lost his ability to practice, we lost our home. Uh, my family went bankrupt and we didn't have a place to live for a bit. Things were really financially tough. 
I took care of my brother, my kid brother, when I was in university in my 20s, trying to have fun and find a career. But I also cared for my 15-year-old brother who was going through high school. So I had to cook for him and support him. So that was a big part that taught me a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a survivor of uh, childhood sexual abuse. Uh, that's something that, that uh, informs me. And um, I know what that's like, the shame that, that people live with. And my mom taught me this belief that is fun, foundational to who I am is this idea that we're all connected. And I literally grew up believing that someone that is dealing with poverty or someone that is suffering, I am literally that person. And if I care for that person or I help them, I'm not just helping that human, but I'm also helping myself because they are an extension of me. And so my, my fundamental beliefs in why we've got to have social programs and universal programs that lift each other up and why we've got to build a world where there's more fairness and equity is because I truly believe we are all connected. So that motivates me. That, that is my, my passion. Uh, I, I also have faced uh, racism and I know what that's like. And so I really believe in, in building a world where we find connections, where we look past our differences. In fact, we celebrate our differences but in doing so, realize we have far more in common. And, and those are some of the things that make me make me uh, who I am. That's a, that's a very optimistic way to look at the world. I remember uh, you know, President Obama, I started working for him in 2004 on the Senate campaign, and he would always talk about the, the deficit of empathy in the United States and in our mm-hmm. political discourse. And it reminds me a lot of what you're, what you're talking about. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> so in, in the U.S., like our debates about healthcare policy revolve around whether the government should, you know, provide some care or no care at all, right? I mean, the Republican Party is basically like throw you to the jackals and the insurance companies. In Canada, you guys are debating how generous Canada's universal healthcare system should be. That's cool. Uh, you think <laughs> the current system doesn't go far enough? Like, what's missing? What What do you want to add to Canada's current system? Yeah, for sure. Well, I would say, I mean, uh, healthcare is is a fundamental part of our party. Our first leader, the first leader of the New Democratic Party is who has been attributed with bringing in universal health care. It is fundamentally a part of who we are. So we had the same struggles where private health care insurance companies, private hospitals, doctors didn't want to see uh, universal health care. So we fought tooth and nail for this. And now it's one of the things that Canadians are most proud of. But when we first envisioned it, like every other country in the world, they looked at universal healthcare and thought, okay, if you're able to go to a doctor's office, go to a hospital, which we can in Canada without any cost, and the doctor prescribes you medication to stay healthy, Mm -hmm. but you can't afford that medication, it really undermines the whole point of the universal healthcare system. There's a reason why every other country in the world that's got universal healthcare also includes medication coverage. So that's what we've been pushing for, that it makes no sense that we don't have medication coverage. And right now, the, the governing party, true to form, how they talk about being a left party, Justin Trudeau talks about being a progressive, campaigned on universal pharmacare, commissioned a report that said universal pharmacare should be public, it should be universal, it should be uh, single tier for everybody, and put in their report one of the key steps is to establish some legislation to achieve this goal of medication coverage for all. He has yet to accept his own report and voted against our motion, which was to do exactly what his own committee or his own report said, which is to bring in this legislation to, to take a step forward towards creating it. So true to form, the Liberals, uh, the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, voted against bringing in what they promised to do in previous elections. They've been promising this for about 20 years as a party. Uh, and so we really want to see this happen. We also want to include dental care and we've got a plan 
that really is quite affordable if you think about the cost of healthcare in Canada and, and how much people want to see dental care coverage. Uh, we believe in, again, universal dental care, starting with those who need it most, and we've got a plan to make that happen as well. Really, our vision is healthcare should cover you from head to toe, and we look at this as an investment, something that helps people. It also helps businesses when you've got a healthier workforce. They can they can work more. They can be right, more productive right. and happier. So now that I think about it, my last question was probably a little misleading. Democrats in the U.S. spend a lot of time debating health care policy, right? It's like Medicare for all versus <laughs> public option. Republicans have spent the last few weeks literally uh, pissed off about Dr. Seuss, right? Their primary focus is trying to uh, elevate these culture war questions, talk about right. cancel culture. Do these idiotic culture war debates exist in, in Canada? Or I guess like more specifically, is this what animates the conservative party, conservative voters uh, in Canada? Or is this like a, a disease that's, you know, US based? You know, very fair question. And there's a bit of a, a bit of an idealism that people have when they think about, about Canada and they think that we are free from some of these things. We've got some of the same problems. We've got the concerns about hate groups, the Proud Boys, which featured really prominently in the horrible incidents at, in Washington, D.C. Their founder is from Canada. It operated mm -hmm. in Canada until we New Democrats fought to get it banned. And now it's been officially banned. So we've got a lot of the same problems. And our conservatives also are caught up in a lot of uh, culture war stuff that doesn't make any sense. They're right now in the midst of a convention where they've got a large wing of their party that's trying to bring in um, a policy to say that they want to take a stance against abortion, something that has been clearly established. Canadians widely are very much in favor of a woman's right to choose. It mm -hmm. is, uh, we've got decent access. We can improve the access, but there's pretty good access to abortion services across, across the country, but they're still trying to debate stuff that's been well-established and well entrenched. So yeah, we've got some of the same problems here for sure. I'm glad you called me out on my uh, on my my stereotype there because I did come into this interview with a bit of a stereotype in my mind, thinking of, of <laughs> Canadians as like polite and generally more reserved. And then I watched this town hall you did, I think in 2019 on CBC <laughs> News, and these voters were like in your face, cutting you off repeatedly, pressing you for policy details before you'd finished your first sentence. Yeah, <laughs> I had to say, like, I, I was impressed, man. I was like, we rude Americans would probably adopt a little more of this tone. Is that standard? Like, are, are Canadian voters just more willing to like call BS and, and push you guys? Uh, I would say, I mean, the politeness is is definitely, there is something about that. Canadians are polite, but uh, yeah, we, we've got voters that are willing to call out things and I, and I appreciate that. Young people in particular, uh, everywhere in the world have the best BS meters. Like they, they will call stuff out when it's fake. So right, I appreciate right. that. The one problem though, I think that we are up against is that uh, because for so long, the the liberal party as a, as a party and an establishment, they have kind of created a lot of cynicism because they, they campaign on a lot of stuff that people want and then don't ever do it. So that has developed a bit of cynicism. So where, where folks are like, ah, oh, they're just going to talk about it again. They're never going to do it. And I feel like that that discourages people from voting. It's got a whole bunch of problems. So I, I particularly am a bit offended at at this at this kind of way of doing politics, where you talk about things or you promise things, but you don't deliver it. As uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party have done a lot. So that I think, uh, in some ways, turns some voters off, and they don't actually get as as hopeful and optimistic and willing to ask the questions because of that. But in, by and large, yeah, Canadians are are willing to to challenge us, and and as they should.
So it's probably obvious to listeners now that like, you know, Justin Trudeau is, is your, is a rival. Uh, you've run against him. Well, where, where has he fallen short in terms of his agenda? Like what policy areas do you want to push him on? Yeah, for sure. So I would say, so a couple of things we, on the, on healthcare, you know, they campaigned on, on the, the bringing in of medication coverage for all. They campaigned on it. They promised it. We put forward, we actually believe in doing it. So we put forward legislation to make it happen. They voted against that legislation. They have sided with Big Pharma a number of times. Uh, one really simple change, which we've got a committee that sets the drug prices and they requested a change, a legislative change in the, the countries that we compare our drug prices to, to actually lower mm -hmm. the prices of medication in Canada. A simple zero cost legislative change. The Liberals, again, campaigned on said we would do it. They mm -hmm. did not do it. The Liberal Party has not yet done a simple legislative change, which would have just changed the countries that we compare to and help lower our drug prices. Again, Why do you think they haven't done that? Uh, I think really clearly they have consistently shown that they're more interested in supporting big pharma's uh, profits. So this is a very simple change they've not done. They campaigned on, on Pharmacare for All, yet voted against it. So they're a pattern of behavior here building very clearly. Like this is not even, you don't have to dig very deep to get to it. Um, we really believe that in this pandemic, when we look at who should pay the cost of this, it shouldn't be workers. It shouldn't be people that have lost their jobs. It shouldn't be small businesses that have been forced to shut their doors and may never open up again. It should be those that have profited, made billions off the pandemic. So we've talked about a wealth tax on families uh, who've got fortunes of over 20 million, a pandemic profiteering tax on companies like Amazon that haven't just made profits in this pandemic, but have made significant record profits. Yeah. And they voted against that as well. So the Liberals voted against uh, this, this idea of taxing the wealthiest to pay for the pandemic. Uh, and that leaves two options, really, out of a crisis. Either that's going to mean austerity, they're going to cut the services, or put the burden on working people. We said there's a third option, put it on those that can afford to, that the wealthiest, the super rich, the ultra rich, have them contribute more. Uh, web giants operate in Canada, like other places in the world, Amazon, Netflix, Google, make profits off of Canadians, but pay virtually no taxes here. So that's another big piece for us. Uh, we want to increase the federal minimum wage. Liberals promised to do it, have yet to do it. We want to end interest on student uh, debt at the federal level, so they should have no interest payments. And uh, liberals promised again to do that, have yet to do it. So a lot of a lot of examples of where they say one thing and they do another. We really believe in fighting the climate crisis, and we believed in mm -hmm. in stopping a pipeline. Uh, Justin Trudeau bought a pipeline, uh, nationalized one, made it national. Where uh, President Biden came in and said no to a, a, a pipeline project, saying that's not the future. Uh, Justin Trudeau talks about fighting the climate crisis on one hand, but then actually goes out and buys the pipeline. So a lot of that, I mean, our agendas are very, very different. We're just focused very much on, on, on what is going to help people out, what's going to help workers out, and how we have a healthcare system that's there for people, a social safety net that's there for people. So, uh, you know, in that same town hall, I watched you talk about sort of this progressive agenda. And, and person after person, voter after voter kept pushing you on how you're going to pay for it, including one guy who has seemed offended by the wealth tax idea because rich people might leave the country. It, it's been interesting in the U.S. Like when I worked for Obama in like 08, 09, in the early years of the White House, the, 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 the deficit, you know, hawks were out, right? It was seen as conventional <laughs> wisdom that you had to keep spending down and that looming long-term deficits were, were a disaster. The, the even very big brain thinking on deficits and their harm and, and the fact that they might cause inflation has totally changed in the US. Yeah. It seems like nobody cares about deficit spending anymore. Is that kind of sea change occurred in Canada or are you still you know, having to constantly talk about how you pay for things? 
Uh, I think there is still a concern about it, but I think the concern about how you pay for things really is because people are worried that they're going to end up having to pay for it. So working people are worried that if there are deficits, their real concern is, well, am I going to be the one who has to pay for it? And, mm-hmm. and that's why the wealth tax and making, making sure the super rich, the super wealthy, uh, large corporations that are very profitable are the ones that pay their fair share is so important. And now we've got lots of public opinion polling that specifically asked not just all Canadians, but also sub, subdivided that into each party supporter and found that there is an overwhelming support for uh, taxing the wealthy, whether you ask a conservative, a mm-hmm. liberal party, or a new Democratic Party voter, everyone at a, at least a minimum of 80% support for taxing the wealthy. So it is widely popular now, and it's something that we have long called for. And now there's a, a really strong public uh, appetite for it as well. So we're we're really uh, focused on that as a way to pay for this. And we really believe that the investments we make coming out of this crisis have to be in making sure an economy that works for all, not just for those at the very top, which as we've seen in the past, Sure, the economy might work for the very few, but what does that do for workers? What does that do for mm-hmm. people? And if it doesn't help people, then what's the point? Yeah. So, so you, you mentioned the coronavirus. In the U.S., it's like I, I really finally feel light at the end of the tunnel. You know yeah. people who are getting vaccinated, right? Like it feels like things are, are looking up. Canada did a great job of containing the coronavirus early, but the government has struggled to get uh, citizens vaccinated That's now. Right. What happened? What, what, like how did that failing occur? So with the supports, uh, I'll I'll be honest, because we were there, uh, the new Democrats were there, we were able to actually get the help that people needed. The liberals were trying to do the minimum. So they they brought in, uh, for example, $1,000 support for for people. We doubled that to $2,000 so that people could stay at home, so that people that lost their jobs could put food on the table. We were there to get the maximum done to support people. So we were able to help in that stage. But when it came to the vaccine procurement and vaccination, one of again, one of the key mistakes that the Liberal government made was they didn't secure the capacity to produce the vaccine in Canada. So uh, every other country, every other major country that's done well has local capacity, domestic production capacity, and and that's something that the, the Liberal government didn't do. A massive failure. Uh, on top of that, in in the states, there's this all hands on deck approach. You've got the federal government, you've got President Biden that's you know deploying the military to support getting uh, federal support of states that are delivering the vaccine wherever and ever, anywhere, everywhere possible. The federal government, Justin Trudeau, has taken an approach of, you know, I'm just going to get this doses and then leave provinces, uh, our version of states, to do, to do their own thing. And that, to me, is a big problem as well. It's not this hands-on approach. So really, we are one of the world's largest economies, a G7 country, and we are performing uh, consistently in the low 30s, even as low as in the 40s, compared to other countries in terms of uh, vaccine dosage and vaccination. So we are, uh, because of the Liberal government's uh, failure, certainly underperforming. And it's something that I'm sad about because I, I want us to get through this and the vaccines are a big part of it. So uh, the Biden administration just recently announced, we're recording this on Friday, that uh, they're gonna send upwards of a million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Canada. Uh, did Was that announcement received well? Uh, I mean, like, how are folks taking that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a positive sign. We definitely need more doses. But really, we're in this position because of the Liberal government's failure. And it, it really shouldn't have come to this. Like, we're a G7 nation. Like, there's no reason that we need to be asking other countries for supply. We should have mm-hmm. had the capacity here, been able to produce it. Um, the UK expert on their procurement and production of, of vaccine actually was on an interview in Canada and said, 
we were in the same position as Canada a year ago. We did not have capacity. We made the decision to make the investments to build that capacity. And a year later, as in right now, they have got local capacity and they've far exceeded Canada in terms of vaccination rates. Similarly, Canada should have made that decision and, and really the Liberal government and Justin Trudeau have failed on this point pretty massively. Yeah. Um, so, you know, President Trump was uh, just, you know, a real troll to Prime Minister Trudeau and sort of <laughs> rude to Canada generally. Now that he's gone, like, is the sentiment let bygones be bygones or does President Biden and frankly, like us American citizens, do we have some work to do to regain your trust to, you know, restore the friendship there after, you know, four years of just being mean? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, no, I think I think we just turned the corner on, on that. Like we we are really hopeful. I mean, I, I didn't hide this. This comes as no surprise. I was pretty open about saying that uh, I want to see Trump gone. He was divisive. He prom promoted hate, promoted uh, racist ideas, emboldened racist, was misogynistic. Mm -hmm. All sorts of problems with him. There's no no question about it. Uh, and I think immediately President Biden has shown a, a big shift, more professional, uh, not divisive. And, and certainly I think we can, we can look forward to working together. And a lot of the problems that we wanna solve are problems that we need to solve together. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic is one that requires us all working together. It's a global pandemic and uh, none of us are better until all of us are better. So really we've gotta take that collective approach. The climate crisis that is still looming is not something that we can solve individually as nations, we all have to work together. So I'm looking forward to a new era of cooperation on these really big problems that we can solve together. Yeah, me too. Uh, last question for you. So you and AOC hung out recently uh, on a Twitch stream. Yes. Very cool. Are you guys trying to, like, are you, is the NDP trying to build solidarity among progressive politicians and movements globally? And like, is that a piece of the puzzle to grow the NDP's power and visibility? Well, I, I think it's important to have solidarity with with progressives across the world. You know, you asked the question earlier. I should have said, you know, we're more in line with your your Bernie Sanders, AOC type of Democrats. Like that's that's kind of our flavor. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, I love the idea of working in solidarity with progressives around the world. I recently did a panel with uh, some of the leaders in Australia, the Labour Party, as well as a Social Democratic Party in Germany, and so we talked about. Mm -hmm. Our, our kind of common goals. In that case, we were talking about taxing the wealthy, the super rich. And so, yeah, I think it's important to, to be able to show that solidarity internationally, that there is progressive movement across the world. And uh, I think that when we kind of highlight each other, we celebrate each other, we can, we can build a, a stronger movement. And for me, uh, it Twitch, TikTok, uh, Instagram, whatever the platform is, my goal is to connect to as many people as possible to share with them a vision of how we can build a better country and, and a better world, frankly. What, what, can you rank them? What, what are you? Are you Twitch, IG, TikTok? Like, wh are you a power user of any of them? <laughs> so, so this is uh, this is maybe not not a, not a commonly known, but like all all leaders and, and politicians have a team behind them. So I've got a, a big team that supports me. Uh, I would say where I am, uh, where I do the work on my own, I would say TikTok is pretty much entirely me. I, I do it on my own. It's it's those are my ideas. Uh, I've got a great team that supports me on on Twitter. That supports me with. Uh, Facebook that supports me on Instagram. Instagram, I would say, is also uh, a lot of a lot of my stuff. Everything is a team approach, but I would say you see a lot of me in Instagram, and then uh, all me TikTok. That's kind of a, a platform that I that I get, and I'm looking forward to getting some more folks on the team that know it better than me. But for now, it's uh, I'm the one that's nice. <laughs> I haven't downloaded it yet. They, you know, all the all the security people have scared me away from it. But my wife is like, 
just all in on TikTok. So I got to. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's I'm cool. Lame. I mean, the cool thing about it is that like, it's a very organic platform. Lots of folks can grow really quickly. Uh, it's it's a lot nicer. Like if you read the yeah. comments. It's that's the, the vibe I got. Positive. Yeah, it's a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, like, t- Twitter is a place where everyone in the world can reach into your brain and tell you you suck. <laughs> you yeah, TikTok yeah, yeah, just yeah. seems kind of fun. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think for folks listening, I don't know if you're into social media, uh, ignore the trolls. Like you've got good people around you, trust their opinions, and don't let the trolls ever get you down. Yeah, don't let them get you down. Uh, this ends the segment that's called uh, 40-year-olds talking about TikTok. Uh, <laughs> saying, thank you so much for doing the show. It was a blast talking with you. Uh, where, where should people follow you if they want to like learn more about you and, and follow your career? For sure. Uh, on, uh, on TikTok, it's uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, Instagram, Jagmeet Singh. On Twitter, it's The Jagmeet Singh. And uh, yeah, yeah, check me out everywhere. I'm on Clubhouse cool. too now. I got to get nice. all. <laughs> Got them all. Touch, touch all the bases. All right. Drug music, thank you again for doing the show. Really appreciate it. Of course. Take care. Thanks again to Jugby Tink for doing the show. Uh, thanks in advance to Amal Clooney uh, and Prince Harry for their future <laughs> interviews. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, thanks to MedMen for uh, their impending sponsorship for all the yeah. PR we gave you today. Anyone else we need to thank then? Uh, no, that's that's uh, that's a pretty eclectic list uh, of people. And yeah, things. that's our that's our Avengers squad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll talk. Life to you guys in LA week. in a pandemic is what it <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah, right. It's been a long year, guys. It's been a long year. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmo Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side.